Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to take a slightly different approach to the podcast, and rather than cover a specific surgeon or instrument or procedure, we'll take a look at an organ. In this case, it's a small appendage off of the large bowel whose function has only been guessed at until quite recently, but has kept many surgeons busy. I'm talking, of course, about the appendix. So let's find out more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. I thought we'd begin by talking about the initial descriptions of the appendix and a bit about its function before getting into the history of appendicitis, which will include the landmark paper that established it as a true disease process, and then cover the history of surgery for appendicitis. Lastly, we'll take a look at some modern improvements and consider the possible future of appendectomies. Now, this topic is very relevant given that the overall lifetime risk for appendicitis is 8.6% for males and 6.7% for females. It is the most commonly reported acute surgical condition of the abdomen and certainly one of the most commonly performed procedures. Let's start with the name. Why is it called the appendix? Well, this comes from the Latin appendir, meaning to hang upon, so both appendage and appendix mean something attached to the end of something, which makes sense as the appendix is attached to the end of the cecum, the first part of the large bowel. The full name is vermiform appendix, and vermiform simply means worm-like, which describes its slender tubular shape. Interestingly, the appendix was clearly depicted in anatomical drawings by Leonardo da Vinci in 1492, but it was Jacopo Berengario de Carpi, an Italian physician and anatomist, who first described the organ in 1521. It soon became a regular part of anatomical descriptions, including one of the most influential anatomy texts, De Humani Corporis Fabrica Libri Septum, or, translated from the Latin, On the Fabric of the Human Body in Seven Books. This was written by Andreas Vesalius, a Flemish anatomist and physician. One of the important things this book did was correct some of the famous Roman physician Galen's errors of anatomy. Vesalius did dissections himself, learning anatomy from cadavers. But in ancient Rome, dissection of the human body was forbidden, so Galen had to infer human anatomy from his dissections of animals such as dogs, monkeys, and pigs, which led to some significant errors. So for centuries, no one really knew the purpose of the appendix, but that didn't stop people from guessing. Anatomists noted that the appendix is found in some animals, but not others. It is present in all hominids, which includes not only humans, but apes, including gorillas, chimpanzees, orangutans, and gibbons, and other mammals, including rabbits, possums, and wombats. Yet monkeys, cats, and dogs, for example, don't. This caused a number of famous scientists, including Darwin, to assume that it is vestigial, meaning a remnant of a previous organ that does not function as it once did. Vestigial comes from the Latin vestigium, meaning a footstep, track, or mark. Darwin thought that it was an evolutionary remnant from a primate ancestor that ate leaves. Eventually, it became suspected that it had a role in the immune system, but it wasn't until the last decade that the function of the appendix had been worked out. It is now believed that the appendix is a sort of bacterial safe house, allowing for the survival of symbiotic flora, meaning helpful bacteria, during bouts of diarrhea, so that they can re-establish beneficial bacteria in the gut following the illness. Interestingly, this protective role in diarrheal illness has minimal importance to humans living with abundant nutritional resources, modern medicine, and modern hygiene practices. So it turns out the appendix has a purpose, but not one that would be noticed in the developed world, which may be why the idea that the appendix has no function could be established. It may be that only in populations deficient in proper sanitation and medical services that the true benefit of the appendix could come to light. So now that we know what it does, let's talk about what happens when things go wrong. For a long time, inflammatory disease of the right lower quadrant was blamed not on the appendix, 
but rather the part of the large bowel that it arises from, the cecum. This led to a number of names for what was probably simply appendicitis. Right iliac disease, iliac passion, a term used in 1557, cecitis, and a collection of related terms that you may still come across and always cause me some confusion. So the cecum in Greek is called the tiflon, from the word tuflos meaning blind, as the cecum seems to be a blind end to the colon. This led to tiflitis, peritiflitis, and paratiflitis, meaning inflammation of the cecum, the peritoneum covering the cecum, and the connective tissue behind the cecum, respectively. Amazingly, it wasn't until the late 1800s that appendicitis was clearly described by a Harvard pathologist named Reginald Heber Fitz. He was an interesting character, having studied under Rudolf Virchow in Berlin, who was considered the father of pathology. Virchow was just then introducing the microscope into the investigation of disease, a practice which Fitz brought back with him to Boston, becoming the first in the U.S. to use the microscope in the study of diseased tissues. In 1886, he read his paper called, quote, Perforating Inflammation of the Vermiform Appendix, with special reference to its early diagnosis and treatment, end quote, in Washington, D.C., at the initial meeting of the Association of American Physicians, to an audience filled with many of the luminaries of medicine. This was based on 257 autopsies Fitz performed on patients that had died from appendicitis. It is considered one of the classics of modern scientific medicine. Not only did he coin the term appendicitis in the article, which was quickly taken up by the medical establishment and public, but Fitz also described the general symptoms, the nature of the disease, and its progression, and the high incidence of fatal outcome of untreated cases. He advocated prompt surgical intervention, which was a new concept, as up to that point, treatment consisted of things like plasters, cathartics, opiates, bloodletting, and turpentine enemas, all of which must have only added to the suffering of patients. So here's a quote from the paper, quote, The vital importance of the early recognition of perforation appendicitis is unmistakable. Its diagnosis in most cases is comparatively easy. Its eventual treatment by laparotomy is generally indispensable. Urgent symptoms demand immediate exposure of the perforated appendix after recovery from shock and its treatment according to surgical principles. If delay seems warranted, the resulting abscess, as a rule intraperitoneal, should be incised as soon as it becomes evident. This is usually on the third day after the appearance of the first characteristic symptom of the disease, end quote. Interestingly, or at least to me, etymologists didn't like his new term appendicitis because it has a Latin stem and a Greek suffix. But that seems a bit nitpicky, and I think Fitz agreed. In writing to one of the founders of Johns Hopkins, Dr. Howard Kelly, Fitz wrote, quote, The word was coined by me purely for practical purposes. I wish to call attention to inflammation of the vermiform appendix as the primary lesion, and that to which treatment was directly to be applied. Though etymologically incorrect, the term was not without analogy. At the time my paper was written, I wished to discourage the prevailing view that the disease in question involved the cecum to any considerable extent. The subject is now so well understood that its nomenclature seems of minor importance. I much prefer appendicitis to Fitz's disease, end quote. So Fitz's paper brought clarity to a common disease process and opened the doors for surgeons to operate and have a major impact on patient survival. W.S. Thayer, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, said in 1913, quote, The sharp light thrown by Fitz on the common and perilous pathological event brought it about that our countrymen were fully 10 years in advance of the rest of the world in their comprehension of this process and in their skill and efficiency in care of the patient. How many human beings owe their lives today more or less directly to Fitz, no one can tell. Surely it is no small number, end quote. So now we're going to have to jump back in time, roughly 150 years before Fitz's paper, to the year 1735, 
to cover the first recorded surgical removal of the appendix, a.k.a. the appendectomy. This was done by an English surgeon named Claudius Amiand, a warden and later master of the company of barber surgeons and founder and first principal surgeon to St. George's Hospital. On December 6th of 1735 at St. George's Hospital, Amiens operated on an 11-year-old boy named Hanville Anderson who had a right inguinal or groin hernia and a fecal fistula discharging into the groin, meaning some part of the bowel that had developed a connection to the overlying skin surface. During the operation, which took half an hour, remember this was the era before anesthesia, Amiens found the appendix inflamed and perforated by a pin the boy had swallowed. The pin was encrusted with stone and had caused the fistula, with the appendix inside the inguinal hernia. The case was reported in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society in 1736, and Amiens wrote, quote, "'Tis easy to conceive that this operation was as painful to the patient as laborious to me." End quote. Now, not only was Amiens credited with successfully completing the first appendectomy, but is also credited for his description of an inguinal hernia containing the appendix, which is now known as Amiens hernia. All right, now let's go back to 1886 in the landmark paper by Fitz, where appendicitis was so clearly outlined. It didn't take long for surgeons to grasp the significance of this and run with it. And the first to really do this is a name those with some general surgery training may be familiar with, Charles Huber McBurney. Before we get into his contributions, let's meet the man. Charles Huber McBurney was born on February 17, 1845 in Roxbury, Massachusetts, and was educated at Harvard College where he rode crew. He earned his M.D. at the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia University in 1870. Following 18 months at Bellevue Hospital in New York City and then the obligatory two years of additional training in Europe, where he worked with Theodore Billroth, see Podcast 39, in Vienna, Austria, McBurney returned to New York City, where he would spend the rest of his career. He opened a private practice when he returned in 1873 and later joined the faculty at Physicians and Surgeons, where he taught anatomy and operative surgery. McBurney became professor of surgery at the age of 44, but stepped down five years later due to the demands of his practice. Throughout his career, McBurney helped advance surgery in a number of areas, including describing a technique for repairing fracture dislocations of the shoulder, which was often a complication of attempts to reduce a dislocation, a method of performing a sphincterotomy for gallstones stuck in the common bile duct, and promoting Halstead's use of surgical gloves. See podcast 35. But of course, the reason we're talking about him now is his most memorable contribution, and that is on appendectomies. In 1889, just three years after Fitz's paper, McBurney published a paper entitled, quote, Experience with Early Operative Interference in Cases of Disease of the Vermiform Appendix, end quote, in the New York Medical Journal. In the paper, he described how pain was first, quote, referred by the patient to the whole abdomen, end quote, but, quote, after a few hours or a day, it becomes more and more evident that the chief seat of pain is in the iliac fossa, end quote. He described that, quote, this point is very accurately in the adult from one and a half to two inches inside of the right anterior superior spinous process of the ileus on a line drawn to the umbilicus, end quote. Now, this has become known as McBurney's point, and just a few years later, William Osler noted the importance of McBurney's tender point in the first edition of his classic medical textbook, The Principles and Practice of Medicine, in 1893. I'll put a picture on Twitter. Just two years later, in the Annals of Surgery, McBurney published another landmark paper, this one called, quote, The Indications for Early Laparotomy in Appendicitis, end quote. In it, he encouraged surgeons to abandon the traditional midline incision, but instead use an oblique incision about four inches long, 
which, quote, crosses a line drawn from the anterior iliac spine to the umbilicus, end quote, which allows for the abdominal muscles to be retracted instead of divided or cut, which improves wound healing and postoperative pain. This gridiron muscle-splitting incision was actually developed by Chicago surgeon L.L. MacArthur, but it has become known as the McBurney incision and remained the preferred operative approach to appendicitis until laparoscopy. And we'll get to that in a minute. Of note, McBurney advised that the appendectomy was not necessarily easy to perform and stated, quote, his strong feeling that it is well worthwhile for anyone who may have to do this operation to see it done at least once first, end quote. Seems like good advice. Now, the next sort of side note I wanted to cover was the story behind one of the physical exam signs associated with appendicitis, the Rovsing sign. This is the presence of pain in the right lower quadrant with palpation or gentle pressing of the left lower quadrant. Niels Thorkild Rovsing was a Danish surgeon who lived from 1862 to 1927. He's most commonly known for this physical exam sign. Now, the likely reason for this finding is that it causes stretching of the peritoneum, which is the lining of the abdominal cavity, causing pain in any location where the peritoneum is irritated, in this case by an inflamed appendix on the right side. His article on the clinical sign was published in 1907. His initial intent was to attempt to distend the cecum and appendix by pushing the left colon, forcing its contents backwards. But as mentioned, this has been shown to not be the mechanism of this sign, and recent studies have shown the sign to have a sensitivity of 30.1% and specificity of 84.4%. This essentially means that if positive, meaning the patient feels pain, it is more than likely that they have appendicitis. But if they don't feel pain, you can't say with confidence that they don't have appendicitis. Now, before we leave him, here's an interesting tidbit about Rovsing. As a junior resident training to be a surgeon, he'd been assigned a hospital residence as an unmarried junior surgeon. However, he got married after his first year of training, and his wife, Marie, moved in with him. The hospital administration cited him for violating the housing policy and dismissed him. The sudden dismissal received national attention. A number of physicians rallied to his cause, some even going on strike, and his vacant position remained unfilled. This became known as the Rovsing Affair, and forced the hospital director and its inspector to resign. Five months after the dismissal, Rovsing returned to the hospital and was assigned housing for a married junior resident. He went on to a very successful surgical career, including appointment as professor of surgery at the University of Copenhagen, a position he held for 27 years. So it was around the dawn of the 20th century that knowledge of appendicitis and its treatment, the appendectomy, began to be accepted by the medical establishment. One event in particular helped launch this into the public eye. The surgeon Frederick Treves successfully treated King Edward VII of England for appendicitis in 1902, although he actually just drained the appendiceal abscess rather than remove the organ. But the publicity of the king's illness made the public aware of appendicitis and made appendectomies a more fashionable surgery. Now, there's a lot more about Treves, but we'll come back to him in another episode. Now, further evidence of the increasing use of the appendectomy comes from the Mayo Brothers, see Podcast 49, who performed 12 operations for appendicitis in 1895, 186 in the year 1900, and over 1,000 by the year 1905. This remained the standard for over a century for treating appendicitis, but the seeds of change began to be planted during the dawn of the age of laparoscopy. In one of my previous podcasts, History of Laparoscopy, Part 2, The Modern Era, Episode 23, I talked in some detail about the German gynecologist Kurt Sem, who was a pioneer in laparoscopy. In 1981, he performed the first laparoscopic appendectomy, which caused some controversy. Let's go back and have a listen. 
one of the most influential people in the history of laparoscopic surgery, is Dr. Kurt Sem, a German gynecologist and inventor. He definitely had a few interesting twists to his story, including this one. At the age of 17, in 1945, Sem was drafted into the Wehrmacht, the German army during World War II. He was captured by the Soviets and held prisoner of war. Following his release, Sem went to medical school, which he financed by working as a toolmaker. Interesting character already, right? His early interest was in fertility studies, and he had actually invented an apparatus for carbon dioxide insufflation into the fallopian tubes, meaning using the gas to test if the tubes were open. At a meeting in 1956, he met Dr. Raoul Palmer, mentioned earlier, who introduced him to laparoscopy and who realized his invention would work for insufflating the abdomen to create pneumoperitoneum. Sem worked in secret on this, as his chief did not approve of laparoscopy, but his automatic insufflating device was a breakthrough, allowing monitoring of abdominal pressure and gas flow. When he demonstrated his device, the anesthesia was inadequate, leading to failure of the procedure. His irate chief literally ordered him out of the OR. Sem's greatest works in laparoscopy, which he called pelviscopy, happened when he moved to the University of Kiel in northern Germany, where he became the forerunner of therapeutic laparoscopy, meaning doing actual procedures rather than just looking around to make a diagnosis. His colleagues were so disturbed by his work that they, and as I said before, this is true, induced him to undergo a brain scan to rule out brain damage as a cause of his bold, innovative approach. Think about that. But this doubt did not stop Sem. In 1981, he performed the first laparoscopic appendectomy. That's right, the first lapapi, as they're now called, was done by a gynecologist. The reaction from the German Surgical Society was to request his suspension from medical practice, and his paper on the procedure was rejected for being unethical. But again, Sem continued his work, even proposing the first laparoscopic removal of the gallbladder, aka laparoscopic cholecystectomy, or lap coli, but as we'll see later, someone else beat him to it. But don't worry about Sem. He started a company called WISAP, which creates laparoscopic equipment, and is still around today. He was also a leader in simulation training for laparoscopic surgery, creating what he called the Pelva Trainer in 1985. Just about every surgical training center now has some form of virtual trainers for learners. Kurt Sem's impact on laparoscopy has been significant to say the least and is a name worth knowing. Laparoscopic appendectomy is becoming the standard of care in most centers for uncomplicated appendectomies. Now, the next wave is the single incision laparoscopic appendectomy, meaning instead of making the usual three cuts on the abdomen to insert instruments, only one cut at the umbilicus or belly button is used in all instruments passed through this hole. It's actually been around for some time, being first described in 1992. And finally, the future of the appendectomy may be in a technique referred to as NOTES, which stands for Natural Orifice Transluminal Endoscopic Surgery, which I briefly mentioned in the third part of the series on laparoscopic surgery, episode 24. Now, the mortality rate of appendicitis over the past 50 years has gone from approximately 26% to less than 1% due to a combination of improved imaging and surgical care. But it's worth mentioning that there is a trend towards non-operative management of uncomplicated appendicitis using antibiotics instead. As one paper I read mentioned, there is some historical precedent for this. During the Cold War, men on submarines received antibiotics instead of appendectomy, as the subs couldn't surface for six months or more. Given that the appendectomy arose in the pre-antibiotic era, it initially didn't have a head-to-head -head comparison to antibiotics, but that's changing. I think it's fair to say that the appendix despite its small size and lack of function for those in the industrialized world, is still challenging us and changing the practice of surgery. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. 
the next episode will also take a different approach, as I've come across a little-known but fascinating corner of surgical history. We will cover a unique and now extinct subspecialty of surgery that arose alongside the Western expansion of America, railway surgery. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes, and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.